Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. Before we hop into things, here's a list of the kind of topics you can expect to hear on today's episode. So we talk about how airplanes generate lift, the benefit of a high thrust to weight ratio, the kinds of people you find in the robotics community, what it means to do research in an aerospace mechatronics lab, the ubiquity of Newton's second law of motion, aerial dynamics, the 12 dimensions of control laws, and applications of both of these systems motion planning, and speaking of planning, Eitan also claims that it's easy to make time for something when you love it. So get ready for all that and, of course, much more in today's episode. Let's go. Eitan Balka is a robotics researcher working toward the PhD degree in the Aerospace Mechatronics Laboratory at McGill University. His research interests include control and motion planning of robotic systems with a focus on aerospace applications. He's published several peer-reviewed conference and journal papers related to the autonomy of agile fixed-wing unmanned aerial vehicles. Outside the academic world, Eitan has been hired as an unmanned aerial systems consultant for various companies in the US and Canada. Outside of the engineering world, Eitan enjoys playing recreational sports and was recently inducted into the McGill Intramural Sports Hall of Fame. So we've got a real treat this week. Eitan Volka, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm doing great. Welcome to the podcast. PhD student extraordinaire. Um, There's a lot going on in this introduction, and so we're basically going to be breaking it down word by word, so by the end of this, there are no more questions. Sounds good. At least on the surface. So I think before we, we do hop into the exact explanation of what you're doing now. I'm curious how one finds themselves in a PhD studying aerospace mechatronics without getting into the details of what that even means yet. What's your background like academically? So I started uh, as a typical undergrad student in mechanical engineering in at McGill and uh, my third year there, there's this program you can enter where you write a thesis as opposed to doing a capstone Okay. What's a uh, design? So Capstone is like a design project. You work on a team. And mm-hmm. instead of doing that, you can just kind of pair up with a professor. He gives you like a baby master's kind of project called like honors thesis. Yep. And so I started with this, my supervisor, Mayor Nahon, and I, we got along great. And so after a bit of time in the undergrad thesis, he says, oh, do you want to joined the lab for the summer full time. So I said, sure. Then after the summer, you know, he's like, do you want to join the lab for a master's? Said, yeah, why not? That's good news. And then, uh, then halfway through the master's, he's like, okay, you know, you can graduate now, or you could just switch to the PhD. Uh, And I just didn't feel like leaving at that time. So I I said, why not switch to the... So you fast tracked. 
So I did a fast track. Exactly. So you do not have a master's degree and you will never have a master's degree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. That's fine. I guess for those listeners who are either at the undergraduate level or have not heard what a fast track is, it's basically when you skip out on finishing your two year preliminary masters. And after one year, you can just shoot directly into continuing your project into a PhD. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So it was, it was love at first flight. Um, <laughs> perfect. Yeah. Were you working on, on aerospace stuff there? Like what was your, what was your undergraduate honors thesis look like? Yeah. So the, the whole lab, the focus is, is on robotics, I guess uh, control and dynamics, which I can uh, go into a bit more later. And, and the majority of that work is also towards ro robots that fly. So my undergraduate project was using quad rotors, which is like a typical drone, that you, commercial drone you see, and studying the effects of wind on their flight. Quad rotor meaning four rotors or four, yeah, exactly. four separate engines? Sorry? Like four separate like battery powered propellers. Is, is that how I could imagine it? Um, so yeah, four propellers, one battery. One battery. Um, but that's the standard one you would see like someone in a park flying filming is, is the scientific word is quad rotor. Quad rotor. Okay. Four rotors. Perfect. Okay. So these are, these are, these, are, these machines are accessible to myself. Yes, for, for about $500, you could buy yourself a pretty nice one that could take off out of the palm of your hand. There's different modes to, you know, take a selfie, things like that. All uh, the things that I would want to do on a nice Sunday afternoon. Exactly. Have a quadrotor just take off from my hand and take a selfie with me. I'll get lots <laughs> of selfies. So clearly, if there's an entire research field based on understanding the dynamics of wind effects on these things, if I'm spending $500 on a machine it's not going to be perfectly uh, functional in every kind of environment. Yes, right? exactly. So what kind of environments would make me uh, have to purchase a new, new machine after it inevitably breaks in these strong winds? Like, are, are we talking hurricanes or is this technology really not able yet to withstand even, you know, mid-level intensity in terms of climate? Well, I think now, so by the way, that, that project started oh at this point was five six years ago so okay. it evolved quite quickly and, and now even in pretty strong winds they would be fine okay. there probably is some spec like don't fly in in a hurricane but <laughs> you know in no, normal conditions it would be fine okay okay perfect okay so your 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 undergrad project is that what you're still working on now? Like six years later, is this the continuation or have you? No, 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 completely separate. It was just completely like, okay. that was my undergrad project. Then for grad studies, you know, I shifted into something uh, different. Okay. So you started with the quad rotors, which as we just explained, are kind of these, these basic, could be even basic entry level drones that you could purchase for half yeah. a grand. And they work in pretty much all windy conditions, uh, barring hurricanes. So, so that's good. Now, the fact that you're doing a PhD means that there's something else going on with wind, something that we don't know yet. Yeah. Well, uh, let me. So the, my PhD is not about wind. So I'll. Uh, uh, okay. That <laughs> so explains. I'll, I'll, it. You figured out wind. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, so I, I for my PhD, I'm working with a different platform. So okay. um, quad rotors, they have no wing. They're just four propellers that you know, push down air to keep themselves afloat, which is a lot less efficient than a fixed wing aircraft. A fixed wing aircraft generates lift from its wing as it flies naturally. So you're not expending energy to keep it in the air. 
Mm. Like now, a helicopter is would be kind of more similar than to a quadrotor than an, a commercial airplane. Exactly. Yes. Okay. So now there's advantages to both. You know, a helicopter or a quadrotor can just take off vertically, can stay in one place, you know, survey an area. But the drawback is for long distance flight. Well, one, it can't fly as long and it's also less energy efficient. Okay. Now, there's this emerging class of unmanned aerial vehicles, which try to take the best of both worlds. So they can take off vertically and then transition into a traditional fixed wing flight. It's like and a hybrid, basically. It's a hybrid, yes. And there's, oh, there's okay. a lot of variants of these type of platforms. Like there's many that would look quite differently. But conceptually, they're all the same in that they can take off vertically, they can hover in one place, but then they can also generate lift from a wing. And th those platforms are much less understood. And that's what my PhD is on. Okay. Right off the bat, the trickiest part of that whole hybrid system seems to be the the transition between being more like a quad rotor, more like a helicopter to then more like uh, an airplane. So like I'm imagining the transfer of lift being tricky. I, I also want to make sure, cause I do have a bit of physics background, but the listeners might not necessarily. So if we just super basically talk about what lift even is and like maybe a, just a slight introduction into how it is that lift is generated differently in a, a fixed wing airplane, as you call it versus a quad rotor. Yeah. So if you imagine, you know, a, a traditional fixed wing aircraft, it has a propulsion system. So like a, a smaller plane will have a propeller. Those are easier to understand. So, you know, a propeller, it spins, pushes the airflow back, and that's what propels the vehicle forward. And then the wing similarly does something similar. It just pushes the air down, which then pushes the aircraft up. So it's just the shape of the wing, basically. Like the wing doesn't have propellers in it. Like the wings are separate than the propellers, but they are still manipulating the air in a way. So that yes, it creates exactly. that. So lift then is, is what exactly? Well, it, so it's the lift is the generation of force from, you know, some wing or surface. Perfect. Like that. Okay. That, that ultimately brings you up away from the earth, right? Lift is, yes. lift is li literally lifting you. That's, that's yeah, where that exactly. comes from. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Just want to make sure everyone's on the same page here. And so with these hybrid platforms, so if you imagine a kind of a traditional fixed wing aircraft that had a really, really strong propeller that, you know, you could just, instead of taking on a runway, you just go vertically upwards. That's essentially the platforms that I work with have. So they have a, a thrust to weight ratio of around two and a half. Um, thrust to weight ratio. So Can you thrust, give me an idea of, of like what two and a half even means in terms yeah, of compared to other stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So, so thrust, you can think of similar to lift, but it's essentially force generated by this propeller is called yep. thrust. Okay. Um, so it, it can ha generate two and a half times the force of the weight. So in order to take off vertically, right. you would need at least a ratio of higher than one. Um, oh, okay, sure. So, so humans then, like, like when I jump, my my thrust to weight ratio is 
well, what is it? I'm, I'm able to jump. So is it? Is it has it to be one? bigger than one. Yeah. Okay. But, but a, a conventional aircraft that you would, you know, fly on is less than one. I don't roughly know. I don't know exactly know what it is. But okay. Maybe it's around a half or something, right? That's why you cannot take off vertically. So something magical happens at one. Well, yeah, rough, uh, but you need a little bit of room for, right. for other air, things. But, but yeah, so you have to be, probably to take off vertically, you need at least like one and a half. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, you're right. This transition is difficult. So you, you would take off vertically and you're generating all the force that's being generated to keep the aircraft in the air is through this propeller, through this thrust. And then as you transition into a more traditional flight path it's now generate it's the force that's keeping it in the air is coming from the wing from that lift and there's a and a lot less is coming from this propeller and does that continue to transition away from the propeller is it i, I don't know if if you drive a manual transmission car or you know how i do not okay <laughs> <laughs> maybe i won't use the analogy but i guess i'll go for it in a manual transmission car uh, sorry did i say manual or did i say standard Oh, you said that's the same thing manual standard is is the same so in like an automatic transmission you just press the gas and you and you're good to go in a manual transmission when you want to change a gear there's a there's like a third pedal basically which is a clutch and you basically clutch down into that pedal to change gears and there's a transitional period as you're changing gears which i'm thinking of as this transition from changing how your lift comes which happens very gradually as you lift your foot off of the clutch pedal and put your foot back onto the gas. There's a trade-off. Is that kind of how the trade-off works between the lift? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the only difference, I mean, I guess it happens in a similar time frame too. It happens, you know, quite quickly. Um, and that is what a lot of people view as the hardest part of, uh, of controlling these things is that transitional period. And you said it's really just a few seconds. Or yeah, less than it. Actually, probably half a second. Yeah. Ha what? Half a second where you can transition from the thrust coming from these propellers to from the wings. Yeah. So this is, you know, for a fairly small scale platform if in the industry, they're actually working on these self-flying uh, taxis where you have a person in this flying machine mm -hmm. that sort of similar, similar idea takes off vertically and then sort of transitions it, it, that, on those platforms, they typically, the actual propellers will rotate. That's what I was imagining, where when you're taking off, they're parallel to the ground, and then they rotate to be perpendicular to the ground. So that's for, for those systems, yes. And, yeah. and that would probably, they're bigger, so it probably takes maybe a couple seconds, probably not half a second. But Okay. So the half second you're talking about is more like the kind of thing that sits in the palm of your hand. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. See, I was imagining like something the size of a commercial airplane no, transitioning no, 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 no. in half a second. I'm like, dude, the future is now. <laughs> okay. So we're not there yet, but you're still saying a, like an actual human being. So something on the order of 50 to hundred kilograms being displaced where it only takes a couple of seconds to make that transition. Yes. And this exists already. Yeah. And those are not like commercially, I don't think you can actually commercially take a flight in one of those, mm -hmm. but they, they exist. They, they have prototypes and things like that. And like real human beings have sat in them as in in honest, here, I'm, dummies. I'm not sure, but yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, okay. So that's a bit about lift 
and a bit about the transition. I'm sure we'll, we'll probably kind of loop back and, and, and hit on these different terms again. I just want to kind of get a, a sense of the pond that we're splashing around in over here or flying around in. So aerospace mechatronics, this is what you, you, these are the terms you use to describe the PhD that you're doing. Is that more or less specific than like the actual degree name you're going to get? Like I, um, I was studying psycholinguistics, but that was a psychology degree. So you're studying aerospace mechatronics. Is it an aerospace mechatronics degree or is it under some larger umbrella? Yeah. So the larger umbrella uh, that I'm in is mechanical engineering. Perfect. Um, however, like in the robotic, the robotics community is made up of computer scientists, electrical engineers, and mechanical engineers, mm -hmm. and probably some even other fields. Um, so it's, it's on the edge of, you know, mechanical engineering. And then I also end up doing things sort of outside of that field. Then I'd say the name of, of my lab is aerospace mechatronics, which essentially means like mechanical engineering and electronics. Um, and I mean, th this is just the name of the lab. So it, it was For, right. Sorry. Yeah. I yeah. see that. That was my confusion. So this, this is the name of the lab is aerospace mechatronics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, aerospace things that are in the, the air that fly, um, like the more general term that maybe is, would be easier to understand is dynamics and control. Right. Um, These were two so words you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Is the study of like how things move. Um, Newton's laws, like F equals MA that that's dynamics. Hold on a second. Let's actually talk about F equals MA for a second. Cause I know what F equals MA is but I want those out there who don't know F equals MA to, to learn all of its beauty. Newton's second law of motion, F equals MA. Break it down for us, Eitan. Well, it's pretty simple. Force is equal to mass times acceleration. And it's really the core of, of anything that moves. That equation shows up in various places. So if something has a mass and you want to accelerate it, then there's a force required to do that. Exactly. So you said dynamics and control. So that's kind of the dynamics side. Yeah. So then control is a more probably advanced uh, topic of research. And that is, so you control a car, right? You, you steer the wheel, you push on the gas, you push on the brake. Now there's a whole field of automatic control. So in, in our, in control, in, in the engineering world, if you talk about control, you're usually referring to automatic control. Um, that almost sounds like, a, like an oxymoron, automatic control. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, so control, it's, it's basically if you want, the, the simplest example they always give is a thermostat. So if your apartment's cold, the heaters kick in. If it's too hot, you know, the heaters stop and the air conditioning turns on. And it's sort of balancing that. It's automatically adjusting those systems to keep the temperature where you want it. So yeah. you can apply that concept to a self-driving car, to an aircraft, et cetera. So um, my lab specifically focuses on, you know, things that fly and then how they move and then how you could get them to move automatically with no human intervention. Does this require like artificially intelligent deep learning neural networks, such as we might have discussed with Jacob Buckman on episode seven? So, I mean, it, you can. So I would say control theory can fall under 
it could fall under artificial intelligence. Some people would would argue that. Um, and then how you the kind of the the method in which how you control something, you can use deep learning and neural networks. You can also use control theory, which is more based on physics and not based on data. Physics, not data. So, so essentially, the way I my aircraft can fly itself is I have what's called a control law. So if it needs mm. to fly, you know, level flight and it starts you know, banking left, there's a control surface, which essentially applies a torque. It, it moves the, it rotates the aircraft. That's perfect. Yes. That, amazing. Good, good fix there. We're not <laughs> going to get into torque. We already have F equals MA with this probably three listeners right now only. Yeah. So through this. say the aircraft is like twisted left and it needs to, it wants to automatically twist, right? You have just some, the very simple, control law that would say for every amount you're you're sort of too far to too far twisted left you want to apply that same twist back so that's like control theory now the the way that the machine learning world would do it is they would have this like simulation they fly it a million times and they there's a reward for how it flies and then it uses that data you know and you're not doing that so you're not you're not applying artificial intelligence or any kind of like deep learning neural networks all that fancy stuff that's not part of what you're doing you're more on the physics side exactly yes okay right so you're not feeding it data through these simulations Um, you're actually just modeling this the, the equilibrium the balance that it needs to strike at every given moment in time Yes, essentially. I mean, it's not, it's usually one. So my control law for this, you know, aircraft, it works, you know, throughout the whole flight. It's not like there's many of them. There's one law. Essentially. Yeah. Seatbelts on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, so what's the law then? Is it what you just said before, which is that if you're twisting too much to one side, then you go the other way. To me, that seems way too simplistic to be the only law to fly yeah. a, well, I mean, an agile fixed wing unmanned aerial vehicle, if I'm saying it correctly. So, I mean, it's, it's more complicated than that because there's more dimensions, right? So there's... Oh, how many? Well, there, there's, you could either argue six or 12. So you have essentially... Is this like string theory or something? Or yeah. Well, because you, you have, you're, there's really 12 dimensions you're trying to control. There's position which is three right because if you think about like a a coordinate system Mm -hmm. and then there's orientation so any there's basically three parameters that could describe how an object is oriented xyz you could think of right well so xyz would be like position position sorry and then orientation but like just take your phone right and you want to put it in some arbitrary you know arbitrary my phone right now you can rotate it right in a a bunch of ways i can rotate it along the three different axes x y and z so that's kind of the you could think about it like that that's why there's three variables associated with um orientation and then so that's six so far that's six and then you could think about the the velocities associated with those so each one of those has a velocity exactly yeah wait a second a position can have a velocity doesn't well, that the okay. derivative of yeah without getting too technical but yeah calculus calculus <laughs> incoming everybody everybody just 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 skip the next eight seconds if you're <laughs> calculus but which you shouldn't be okay so you take the derivative which is some mathematical operation we're not going to get into and that produces velocity for oh yes for all six of those previous things we so 12 okay 
so you are sort of trying. So as I said, with a thermostat where you're trying to, you know, basically control one temperature, there's actually 12 things you're trying to control. What? So, in a thermostat? No, 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 no. With the, oh. with the aircraft. <laughs> oh, I thought you there's like 12 different dimensions in a thermostat. I'm like, that's crazy. Because, oh, wait, wait, so actually, let's give the listeners five seconds to think about how many dimensions are in a thermostat, and then you will tell us the answer. So it's just a moment of silence. How many dimensions in a thermostat? One. Oh, that was in five seconds. Oh, <laughs> but wait a second. How can it be one? Because to me, this seems like everything has to be at least a multiple of two because you just said you can, you can take the derivative. True. So yeah, it's, it's kind of like, it's not a... Like, how is it one? Oh, it's one dimensional because you're just thinking about like, like the linear scale of temperature. So you're either increasing or decreasing temperature and that's just one dimension. Is that what you're well, saying? It's, it's not, you shouldn't think about it as like a hard... So there's, without getting too technical, there are some, something called a state is what you're trying to control. Okay. So a person, you know, in a room, they care about what the temperature is. They don't really care about the rate of change of the temperature. Ah, so I see now you're saying rate of change in reference to calculus. Exactly. Calculus is the mathematics of rates of change. Okay, perfect. Again, we're not, this is not abstract, the podcast about calculus and about losing as many listeners as you can in a short period of time. It's, <laughs> it's specifically about very many different things, one of which is uh, agile fixed wing unmanned aerial vehicles. So states. So, so yeah, so I mean, a state, so for, for a thermostat, you're, you really care about the temperature. So you would, that's why there's really one state with these flying vehicles. You kind of do care about the, the rate of change of those others. So that's why there's 12. So back to the earlier, it's not as simple as what I put it as just that, but it's not that far off from that. So there are 12 dimensions that you were accounting for in your control model your control hold on you control called it a control algorithm algorithm sure um there was a different word that you used for it control control uh, law. law yes i like that control law this takes into account the 12 dimensions six of which are just derived from this the the original six of three orientation and three position yeah this and is then, the, okay and then the way you you actually follow though whatever your desired you know value for those those states are you can control them with what's called an actuator so on an aircraft uh -oh. what's an actuator it's, it's pretty simple it's basically what what makes it move so you have okay. one actuator is that propeller we were talking about earlier okay so it provides it gives you force now you actually have three other actuators which are little flaps which are called control surfaces. And these are, they are on conventional aircraft as well. And when they deflect, you know, the airflow over the plane, you know, is modified based on how you deflect them, which then causes the plane to rotate. So there are two, two of those flaps that, that control the airflow, one on each wing and then one on that back tail, right? Uh, yeah, and there's, a, there's kind of, on the tail, there's kind of two. Two, okay. Uh, there's like, one called like an stacked above each other. Which, which, you know, makes you elevate it. And then yeah. one with a rudder, which is similar to a boat. A boat, yeah. People are, yeah, familiar. So there's two on the tail. Well, so there's two on the tail and then there's two on the wing, but the two on the wing are considered one because the same they're thing. always doing in sync with each other. Mm. So Cool. Okay, so lots of different actuators. And the actuators really is just a fancy word for the thing that, 
that affects change related to airflow in the case of an airplane. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I hope my my constant rewording doesn't bother you. This is the no, best no, way that I myself have figured out how to how to create this this coherent image in my mind is just to dial it down as much as possible. Doing doing great so far. So you said that you have a background in, or at least your thesis is related to robotics and also a focus on aerospace applications. So I guess something that the listeners might be curious about, including myself, is what are the applications of this field, but specifically, what are the applications of your specific control law? So one of the main things people are are interested in would be medical supply delivery. So say, you know, you're um, bit, you're in some rural area and you're bit by a snake and you need some, some thing that can save your life, but you need it very quickly. So if you had a hub with various medical supplies with one of these drones there you could then load it in and say like say that hub was you know in a limited space you could take off vertically you don't need a full runway to to take off but then once you're high enough you could transition into this conventional flight regime and then fly towards whoever the person is and then you know, drop the, the urgent uh, medical supplies. Okay, yeah, that seems, that seems pretty good. If there are any listeners right now who are currently being bitten by snakes in rural areas, don't worry, help is on its way. Give us a few more years. I think Aton's almost done his PhD. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll be okay. Just, just suck the venom out if it's in, 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 a, in a mouth accessible location on your body. Okay, anyhow, so great. That is definitely a great example. I'm curious to ask for one more example. Yeah. So another one would it's be very specific surveillance. Okay. So say uh, there was some, some crime scene, right? You needed eyes in the air as opposed to having a helicopter, which one consumes a lot of energy. You're putting risk to the pilot, especially if there's maybe someone with weapons or whatever that could shoot down the helicopter. Mm-hmm. If you had some smaller platform running on, battery electric batteries with no pilot it's it's better for the environment it's also safer because there's no human actually on there and if all you really need is like video footage you could put a camera on one of these drones and uh and survey the area so just taking out the human component then so we already have unmanned fixed wing aerial vehicles then you have the additional word agile I'm really continuously referring back to this intro. So, yeah. you know, everything I'm talking about is, has already been mentioned at least once. I, I guess I'm asking the question, do we already have autonomous fixed wing unmanned aerial vehicles without this agile kind of modifier on it? You're, you're right on that. That's perfect. So the, the traditional fixed wing, you know, that was probably solved 30 years ago. It's the agile, which I'm also kind of referring to this, vertical takeoff mm-hmm. um and then you know the transition is quite agile um there some of the the other thing that's we the other reason why we use the word agile is some of the turns that we make are much more aggressive than something you could feel in a passenger aircraft much like sharper turns mm-hmm. um there there's a a whole like hobbyist group 
which essentially flies these these planes manually and they they go to competitions and they twirl these planes around and they do rolls and backflips i've and I've, like I've heard and, and and seen that before it looks insane it's like yeah, obstacle so, courses for drones so that was actually one of the motivators of my project was like all these people are doing it manually let's just see if we can automate this is your goal to, to actually put one of your automated vehicles into a competition like this and like see if you can compete at that level? So, you know, the, the techno I've already, the technology is developed. Like I, I could do, I can do similar things to uh, what these human pilots can do. I could okay. do them automatically with my platform, but it's just, I didn't find it worth it. He effort. says, he says with utmost humility, <laughs> I can do that already, but I'm not even going to try and compete there. Cause I got better things to do. Like how people, well, I mean, you know, it, what's the, what's the value? Like, Oh, these humans can do it, and now my machine can do it better. Like, is that bragging rights? <laughs> is there any? <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, I think I, I think I I recall seeing some kind of like virtual reality uh, thing where people would kind of put on the like like the VR mask, and they would essentially see what the airplane sees. Yeah, that's that would probably make you throw up if you. Uh... <laughs> Very possibly. Okay, so okay, so just to just kind of take stock again of, of where we're at here, just a quick check in. We already have autonomous fixed wing unmanned aerial vehicles that already exists. Do we have autonomous agile unmanned aerial vehicles? So everything except for the fixed wing? No, we don't. So that's that's oh, we where, don't. Okay. That's where like, my research comes in, in in two places. One is the the control, which we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. is if you want these things to maneuver on their own, you need to develop these control laws that will stabilize them. In these different flight regimes, it's complicated to do that. That's why it's requiring like a whole PhD. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that's about half my, my thesis. Now, the, the second half is motion planning, which, I, which was mentioned in the intro. So control is like, I want to fly this path. Why can't you can you automatically follow this path? Motion planning is now I have a camera on this vehicle and it sees a tree that it didn't know about earlier. So motion planning says, let's change the path to avoid this tree. Okay. So it takes into account variables that you hadn't, you know, been able to take into account. Yeah. Cause you, you can't plan, you know, what if a tree is not in, in Google maps or, what if a bird flies by? Like you can't, mm -hmm. you don't necessarily know your environment ahead of time. So you need a system that can sort of generate desired motion to avoid potential obstacles that arise. Okay. Have you been working on the control for the first half and now you're heading more towards the motion planning or was it kind of both happening at the same time? No, it was the, it was exactly what you said. So okay. the, the first idea was, you know, we work on this control. We, try out all these fancy aggressive maneuvers and they seem to work quite well. So once they were working quite well, we said, well, let's do something else. So that's why we went on to this. Uh, was that in the initial plan for your, for your, for your thesis or for your dissertation? Your well, the initial plan was just the control. Like that would have been my master's had I just finished the master's. And then you, there was still room to improve, like nothing's perfect, but I kind of decided I'd rather grasp we're gaining knowledge in another area of robotics as opposed to get deeper into the one I already was in.
essentially. I can appreciate that for sure. And, and that will, I think, probably make for a more interesting end product as well. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Because you don't need to, as like an individual researcher, dive that deep at this point, in my opinion. You'll probably be at least more hireable, more desirable, more admirable, more less fireable um, with, with the motion planning. So it's exactly. Yeah. So let's dive into the motion planning then. So this is basically taking into account things in our environment that we can't account for in a sense, which kind of seems a bit weird, but, um, how does, how does like your, your motion planning law differ from your control law then? Are there fundamental differences there? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're quite different. So I have this, this camera, it's, it's actually two cameras. Like, like your eyes, you can perceive depth if you have two eyes. So similar with, with cameras. If Not to discriminate one, against listeners who only have one eye. If you can't see depth, that's okay. We still love you. <laughs> so with, you know, with two cameras, you can you get some sense of depth. And then you could project, say I wanted to fly this route. Would that route have a collision with something? It doesn't really matter what, actually. And you can also measure like, where do you want to go? So the way the algorithm works is, you know, five times every second, it's making this calculation. It, it takes a bunch of potential routes it could travel and it weighs, is it going towards where I want to go? And is it far from obstacles? And then the one that's kind of the best of both, like is chosen. And that's what's given to the controller to then track. It's an optimization problem, basically. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, now I just want to call you out because you said it doesn't really matter what the obstacle is. However, what, a bird, what it is. What it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I would argue that a bird is a different obstacle than a tree because the bird's position is going to be changing in every like five times a second, whereas yeah. a tree is not. That's a very good point. So, I mean, there's only so much you can do in a PhD, but that would be one way <laughs> to, to enhance the algorithm. So you're post right. Doc, but... Post, doc, post, doc. <laughs> okay, so there is a difference. I just want to- Yeah, no, there's point. definitely. And, and say you wanted to avoid other aircraft, right? That would, you would 100% have to take that into account. That, of course, makes me think just of like the whole auto, like uh, self-driving car thing is you're working with, not just birds and trees, but also every other car has its own kind of brain, quote unquote, and mm -hmm. it's making its own decisions. So kind of, yeah, I guess making yeah, sure. Yeah, in a self-driving car, they will actually detect that's someone on a bicycle. That's someone right. walking. Okay. That's just a mailbox, right? So then if you get a little closer to the mailbox, that's fine, right? It's not. It isn't going to run out and, and then, you know, you're going to, it'll take you to court. No, yeah. it's mailbox. <laughs> So in terms of motion planning, then the level that you're at right now, you are purely just identifying obstacles. And then five times a second, you're basically creating a, an, an optimal path, according to some, I guess, probabilities of all of the things that are happening around you. It yeah, sounds very statistical. Much. And yeah, so yeah, you, you summed it up pretty well. guess I'd like to maybe just touch on quickly for fun that that last part just to kind of pause for a moment let let the things we've spoken about just sink in 
You said that you were just inducted into the McGill Intramural Sports Hall of Fame. One thing that we, that we do like to talk about on this podcast is work-life balance. So it sounds like you've really got your hands full and there's a lot of very, very dense material that you must be sifting through in order to actually you know, plan and, and, and write up and create these algorithms, et cetera. How did you make time for sports and also to the level of actually getting into the McGill Intramural Sports Hall of Fame? That's, that's pretty impressive by my standards. Well, I mean, I, it's mainly just that's what I love doing. So it's easy, I think, to make time for something when it's your main source of entertainment. I, I probably don't spend too much time on, you know, like Instagram and watching Netflix I, I just, I, I'm not great at any sport, but I just love most of them. So I, you know, you get a group, good group of friends that are kind of have the similar mentality. We just signed up for all the leagues. You know, we took our soccer team, we signed us up in the basketball league. And that's, that's pretty funny, actually. Um, these, were, these are people who, who you would just play various sports with outside of school. And then, you- yeah, like, I think it just kind of evolved. Like, you know, you know, one friend and then they know someone and, all of a sudden we have, it's, I kind of consider one of my groups of friends as like the, the sports, you know, I've got one friend in particular, he got inducted into the hall of fame with me and we mainly just play sports together. It's like, we're on like five teams together every semester. Okay. So you guys must have a really good synergy then. Like you're kind of a dynamic duo power duo. Exactly. Okay. And I, before we were just chatting a little bit and you said that your, your like favorite sport was, was soccer. Is that for any particular reason? Is it the fact that you, you need to take into account control and motion planning of the ball and the other players? Is it, I'm trying to draw some relationship here between aerospace mechatronics and uh, football. I think it's just, that's what I grew up. That's what I'm best at. So uh, okay. I think you just, you like, but you know what? I think I have more fun playing other sports. I, I'd say I'm best at soccer, but when you get at a certain level, I think you don't improve every time you play. Whereas if you're bad at something, the more you play the you know, you, you improve much faster. It ends up being more fun. I see. So what, what you're saying indirectly is that you value the learning experience. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's why I'm still in school, you know, see, this is, this, this is what my goal was is to figure out how exactly getting to the McGill intramural sports hall of fame relates to doing a PhD in aerospace mechatronics. <laughs> so there is a connection, which I'm very happy about. It's just, it's the desire to learn and the fact that you are clearly adaptable. So that's great. Love it. What do your parents do, by the way? My mom is a doctor and my dad is a software engineer. Okay. So, so, so tiny shoes to fill. Minuscule, <laughs> minuscule shoes. Do you have siblings? I do. But I, my, my old, funny enough, my, my dad started a PhD, dropped out. My brother started a PhD and dropped out. I'm, I think I'm going to finish. I'm trying to submit my thesis in the next couple months. So. Oh, you're like really coming up to the end then. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Okay. I'm um, glad that I'm catching you then at that point so we can really have as fruitful of a discussion as possible. That's great. But yeah, so I might be the first in the family. Well, hopefully. That would be great. Cross. First for the PhD, but not the first to be a doctor, you know? Exactly. So yeah, unfortunately, yeah. you didn't get that, that title, those bragging rights. That's cool. I think it's interesting. Um, I, I'm, I'm quite interested in family dynamics myself, not just, not just aerospace dynamics, but <laughs> the social aspects and, uh, you know, how how the home environment, family environment might actually shape your desires. Did you know that you wanted to, like, how long have you known that you wanted to pursue a PhD? Oh, no, I, I think in any other, if I played out my life, uh, like 10 times, 
Mm-hmm. This is the only one where I end up doing a PhD. Like, okay. I never particularly wanted to. I, I, I honestly, it was just like, I think I wanted to do the master's degree. I felt like I, there was a lot more to learn to enter like the robotics world that I didn't have after undergrad. And I, I liked my supervisor. I said, you know, I'll stay. Then for the PhD, it was more like, you know, if I got a job, how would I keep playing sports? Like, I can't play intramurals anymore. I had to, uh, you know, okay. needed a reason to stick around. And uh, and I said, why not? You know, it's, it's a nice, I have a great work-life balance. Like, I, I don't work that much. I, can get, you know, if you get... Doctors hate this one PhD student, you know, the picture <laughs> of the banana. Fruits you shouldn't eat. Eitmanbolka <laughs> is the worst. I'm really happy to hear that, though. It, it it really does bring me joy to know that there are graduate students who really love what they do. They have a good work-life balance and they make it work. I think for the listeners, though, what would be most beneficial here is for you to kind of maybe give us a sense of like what your, what your approach to life is. Like, tell us who Eitan Bolka is and how he manages to do all this with a smile on his face, a great attitude and a great balance. I, I think it's something a lot of people struggle with. What can we learn I mean, from you? I, I honestly, it's pretty simple. I think I just do what I like doing. Okay. So, I mean, you can't think super short-sighted, but I don't think that long, you know, that far in advance either. If, if I like doing something, keep doing it, you know, like that, have that was been someone though, who, who liked doing a lot of things. Like, did, like Sorry? Was that, have you always been someone who's, who's liked doing a lot of things? I, I don't think I do that. I mean, Honestly, the two things I do are sports, school, and, you know, drink with friends. Like, I, I, don't, okay. I don't think I'm doing that much. Like, okay. Uh, Except to do all the sports. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I guess that's like many things in one category. So, you, yeah, you know, and, and I think that's also who I surround myself with is like people with similar interests. Like, we go, yesterday I was at the park all day, you know, bring in spike ball and can jam and football and so you know and it's everyone is kind of has similar mindset yeah which is uh, apparently who cares about COVID-19 <laughs> <laughs> no no we kept our distance we, okay on. no one was licking the spike ball <laughs> okay good to know um, all right so look no, it's it's uh it's something to think about I think just and, and actually one other point okay. I want to make is yeah. I think a lot of grad students who feel like they don't have a balance like a work-life balance a lot of it i think falls on the supervisor who puts a lot of pressure luckily my supervisor i think does he doesn't put any pressure on me it's it's all self-motivated which i think is a good way to go about it Mm -hmm. if it's not self-motivated though like to me that kind of seems like one of the foundations of a successful graduate student is actually being self-motivated to the point where you don't even need the supervisor to be kind of on your butt yeah exactly so but and you know you know you need one that's reasonable that, that doesn't expect you know absurd amounts of work in in no mm-hmm. you know in a short amount of time so, so given that you that just kind of basically said that you're quite an independent you know self-driven phd student how often do you communicate with your supervisor like like do you go months or is this or is, is, is there just kind of a consistent constant regular um that's a good question well i I started out probably about at once a week speaking with him and and I definitely needed more guidance in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Luckily, as I kind of grew more independent, he, he became the like chairman of the department. So he went this time and, you know, with all the 
McGill bureaucracy with COVID and stuff. I, now at this point, I probably speak to him once every month, once every three weeks, kind of. Thing. Okay, fair enough. I think it's also interesting. Just you know, like every every supervisor is a different story, different experience. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So as you said, that can definitely shape the graduate research experience as well. Okay, so we're coming to the end here. You said that you've been hired as an unmanned aerial systems consultant for various companies in the US and Canada. What are some of the companies you've worked for and what have you done for these companies as a consultant? So it's obviously consulting. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, can't, I can't talk too much because you do sign uh, NDAs and stuff. Oh, okay. But um, basically there are a lot of companies with very similar missions and platforms to my to what i'm doing for my phd so two of them it was it was really very similar work to what i've already done they're like oh we need this done and you know i can charge them way more than what i get as my stipend so it's uh (laughs) (laughs) it's worthwhile yeah yeah but very very similar the same control and, and motion planning for these vehicles um, there, there's are a lot of drone companies out there trying to make it and trying to acquire talent and whatnot. So it's, it's actually been, I've never tried, I never tried to get any of these gigs, but they sort of just, when you're in the field and there's seems to be a bit of actually a shortage of workers in this area. So mm-hmm. it kind of just fall. But uh, is it an emerging field? Like it seems like it, this is kind of cutting edge stuff, but where's, where's the demand for it? So uh, that's a good. Well, first of all, investors are, are willing to, to put money into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the whole just like automation, AI, you know, there's just a lot of attention. So there are like a lot of startup companies that have, they have money to spend. So. Uh, and Aton has money to get. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, like I think it's, it's surveillance. There, there are military contracts for these drones. I, I don't know if I'll stay in the in the field. Like I, I might switch over to self-driving cars. There's even that's even a bigger industry and yeah. have even a bigger impact. I went to a conference a couple of years ago and I, I I went to some talk about some product. It was called an EV toll, an electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicle. Have you heard of these things? That's a that's another word for what I what I'm working on. <laughs> Okay. I, I recognize the similarity. These were people, this is maybe two two or three years ago. And they were talking about how it, you know, by 2030, let's say they want to have these, these basically, you know, EV tolls, these, these, you know, flying, these agile fixed wing unmanned aerial vehicles to transport people like across the city or, you know, very Mm -hmm. quickly, basically. And so that seemed like even then, like two, three years ago, it was even more in its infancy. And it was just like purely, you know, kind of like a pipe dream. Yeah. So, I mean, I think now those companies, I, I, I've seen a few, I don't know if it's, if it's the same, but they're, they're really making progress. Like you can see videos of real prototypes that are, are flying and, and, and it's a lot of work to go from, you know, just, there's a lot more than just the manufacturing, right? There's a lot of dynamics modeling, like we talked about and, and all these things that need to be put into place 
safety wise that you have right especially if you have people in them um, not really dealing with like the ethics of anything right because everything actually yeah i mean how was how was the ethics process for your for your phd then not that it's the most interesting thing to talk about on a podcast but like what are the ethical implications of what you're doing there's no people but still flying things that you're trying to control like if there's a mistake could your could your you know drone fly and then chop someone's heads off by accident you know yeah i mean my, luckily mine are small enough that I don't think you could ever, you could hurt someone. You couldn't, I don't think you could kill anyone with, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, that's why when What we if do, I wanted to kill somebody? <laughs> you, you gotta need a bigger one. Yeah, okay, perfect, perfect. Uh, no bad but, intention here. <laughs> you know, you do have to be very careful, right? Like we, we go to very big fields. If anything looks fishy, you know, we, we, re- we land the aircraft, like, we're very careful because if it was to fly away and, you know, hit someone, it, it could hurt them. So. Okay, cool. Awesome. Amazing. I'm, I'm glad that we just kind of touched on the, on the industry aspect actually. Um, so this is episode 11 and on episode 10, I had Andrea Cartile on and she's also in the aerospace industry and she had a lot of experience in industry as well. So I think it's cool now that we've had two, two guests in a row that have kind of dabbled in the, in the same region, but still very, very different things. Final question. So my final question is a question I've asked to all my guests. So if you've been a day one listener, then you know what this question is already. And that is, how would you describe yourself as an academic using one to three words and as a student, uh, sorry, and as a person outside of academia? one to three words and would those descriptors be the same or different one word as an academic and one word outside of academic exactly so like academic life like again because you said you have great work-life balance so clearly you're you know or not clear but maybe you you are similar in both domains maybe different how would you describe yourself in each domain one to three words each um I guess this doesn't sell myself very well. I'd say I'm fairly laid back in, in both. And, and I think in fairly in, laid back three words. Cool. Cool. In, in life, I think that helps, but I think in academics, it, it doesn't in some, uh, some situations, but, uh, but it works well with your supervisor because they're a little more hands off. So yeah, the fairly laid back stuff works as long as you get the work done. Fairly laid back. Okay. Uh, are you, are you competitive when you play sports? Yeah, that's actually, I'm extremely competitive when I play sports and I'm not competitive at all with, with the research. So I, is that because there aren't many people doing what you do? So like, there's no one to compete with. Um, I mean, that's maybe that's part of it. I, yeah, I, I just don't see the need, like in our lab, that's just the environment. Like I'm not gonna, I'm gonna help my lab mate and he's going to help me. I'm not going to like be like, Oh, I got to beat him out. And and publish this it's it's much more like we work together and and collaborate and it's not competing and even with other universities like it's not i don't feel like we're right i know in other fields people are you know rushing to publish in front of their peers from other places but you know we've had some some collaborations with a, a university in a lab in the university of sherbrooke and a lab at harvard and in both situations, like we're just giving each other tips, like little things, you know, that kind of go a long way. Nothing, we were never working too close with them, but it's also, it's not like, I need to get this out before they do. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't okay. have that uh, feel. 
that's nice to hear that there isn't like this like cutthroat nature just you know all across your field i, I think that probably is more conducive to an enjoyable experience not not feeling like there is this this pressure right and again that that facilitates your fairly laid-back nature exactly. so it's a match made in heaven awesome well it's 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 really been a pleasure uh chatting with you so just i guess for some for some background um Eitan and myself met on a trip five years ago or something like that. You give me a face like you didn't, like you have no idea who I am. Oh, no, of course. <laughs> You're like, what? Who is this guy? He's, he's making this all up. And so it was, it, it was very nice to reconnect. I'm glad that I now know a lot more about control and motion planning of robotic systems with a focus on aerospace applications and the autonomy of agile fixed wing unmanned aerial vehicles. And I hope the listeners also do feel the same way. So we're going to leave it there. Thanks again, Eitan, for coming on the podcast. Have a great rest of your afternoon. Thank you. And you too. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at AbstractCast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.